Podglomerate original. Yes, it's showtime at the world-famous Apollo Theater, and we bring you the Harlem Variety Review. More about our show in just a moment. Saturday, February 18th, 1956, 125th Street, just off 7th Avenue. The theater, the Apollo. Grace Kelly has nothing on me. She got a prince and I got me a cow. Why do I think I have a better copy of this somewhere? I must. Because it was reissued under a different title. Just show Andrew that, that record. It's amazing. It's a night at the Apollo. Recorded yeah. live in New York City at the Apollo Theater. Jackie Mabley. And she's billed as Jackie Mabley, not even Mom's Mabley at the time, although she had that moniker. This was reissued. That's I have Mom's a better Mabley. copy. Now, I don't have this album. This album comes to us from our friend... Jeff Abraham at the Abraham Comedy Archives. An on-the-spot recording from the stage of Harlem's famed Apollo Theater. But look who does the liner notes. Langston Hughes. <laughs> There's also a tap dance act on this. It's amazing. Yeah, a few months ago, we went over to his collection and... You were in the... Yeah, you were in the stacks. It was... What'd uh, you think? It was... I've never seen that many albums in one place other than a record store before. And it was all pretty much comedy. And this is the Abraham Comedy Archives, one of the largest archives devoted to the history of comedy. And so a lot of the clips we hear on this podcast come from Jeff and his archive. Exactly. Welcome to the History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all a little bit more about the history of stand-up. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Stephen. Why are we listening to this clip of Moms Mabley? Well, she's a very important person in the history of not only stand-up, but specifically the history of the Apollo Theater and something called the Chitlin Circuit, which we're going to talk about this okay. entire episode. What, what's the Chitlin Circuit? Well, before we get into what the Chitlin Circuit is, do you know what Chitlin is? Um, no. Chitlin is fried pig's intestines but fried in bacon grease. Now, I've never tasted chitlins, but I do know what's inside intestines, so I can't imagine it was great. But they say bacon makes everything taste better. Right, so maybe. The Chitlin Circuit was a collection of all-black venues and clubs and theaters that was in the United States during the era of basically racial segregation. And this is not just the South, my friend. This is in the North as well, where a lot of African-American families came North during what's called the Great Migration. And a number of clubs opened up specifically in these neighborhoods, which were redlined and subsequently launched some of the greatest music and comedy acts 
we've ever known. And so the Apollo Theater was in the Chitlin circuit. Not only in it, the crown jewel. Remember we talked about the Palace Theater was the crown jewel? For the vaudeville circuit. Yeah, that's what the Apollo became. And it's, it's still around today. So this is going to be exciting. The Apollo Theater on 125th Street in New York City. The show is already in progress. As usual, the bill features two of the swingin' stars of the day. Dinah Washington and Louis Jordan. So a lot of people think of the Apollo as this incredible theater. It's one of the biggest tourist destinations in the United States. Millions of people visit it every year. And talking about the Apollo Theater and the Chitlin Circuit, I just want to be clear, these were primarily music venues, and comedians were used to augment these music shows. The Apollo was originally created as a burlesque house. It was built in the 20s, I believe. Okay, so I see that Hertig and Siemens was a burlesque house that was shut down, and so that eventually became the Apollo? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. There was sort of an anti-burlesque movement that culminated in 1937 with the shutting down of a famous burlesque theater called Minsky's. And incredibly, the city banned the words Minsky's or burlesque from any advertising. And when the Apollo was Siemens, and what was the guy's name? Hertig and Siemens. Hertig and Siemens, it was an all-white venue. Black people were not allowed to go in that theater. Even though it was right in the middle of Harlem, right in the middle of when Harlem had this blossoming, what they call the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, it became the epicenter for African-American literature and art and poetry and music and fashion. So the Apollo opened in the 30s. It was bought in 1933 and opened in January 1934 as the Apollo, which is obviously a Greek god of sun and poetry and song. Interesting, not comedy. Oh, thank you so much. Gee, it's wonderful to be back in New York City. I'm telling you. I just left Lost Wages, Nevada. Yeah, they got me too. But I'm going back to visit my money. You know, I rode out on this new train, the Super Chief. I don't know if you've ridden it or not. It's a crazy train. Do you know I had a private compartment? I know it was a private compartment because every time we stopped at the station, conductor locked the door. <laughs> You've written that way before. That's from the 1956 recording, A Night at the Apollo, that we started out the episode with. Yeah, that's uh, stand-up and impressionist George Kirby, who was the second African-American comedian to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, as you know, then called Toast of the Town. Who came before him? Oh, that would be Dewey Pigmeat Markham. We're going to talk about him in a moment. But here's Kirby making his second appearance on the Sullivan Show back on December 18th. 1949. George Kirby, come out here and take a bow. It's a great young performer, isn't he? Why don't you do, while you're here, you know that imitation you do of Joe Lewis? <laughs> well, uh, I kind of figure all the time, I went back into it again. Uh, then I figure all the time again, I went back into it again. Uh, <laughs> now, then I'm going to stop promoting for a while, but I think I'm going to go back and fight again. Thanks very much. <laughs> The Apollo Theater was always looking to discover the next George Kirby or Moms Mabley, and they had what has become this legendary amateur talent competition, which was every Wednesday night. Now, everyone thinks this competition was created at the Apollo, but actually, 
It began in 1933 at another theater called the Lafayette, which was seven blocks away. So this amateur night was started by Ralph Cooper, and he took his show to the Apollo. And the rest is history. The first great discovery on this amateur night was this ragtag runaway named Ella Fitzgerald. Imagination is funny. This is what Harlem Renaissance legend Langston Hughes wrote on the liner notes of that album, A Night at the Apollo. This amateur hour now occurs every Wednesday night after the final professional show and may be observed on the same ticket. Sometimes an Apollo amateur can be almost as moving and exciting as a Spanish bullfight, except in a bullfight, not always does a matador get killed. But every amateur night at the Apollo, one or more of the participants are, quote, done away with, unquote, in plain sight, killed, literally shot, but fortunately with a blank cartridge, shot by a clown who prances out from the wings to the syncopated music and points in rhythm a jive pistol at the untalented amateur and blows him down. A moment that changes many a young life. But some of the youthful singers or dancers or monologists who managed to survive go on to fame and fortune, as did Miss Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan. So did Moms Mabley start out at the amateur nights? No, she was already a professional working comedian. So Moms Mabley, whose real name was Loretta Mary Aiken, and at that time, a lot of acts, especially in the black community, would would adopt these kind of flamboyant stage names. There was a legendary comedy team called Butterbeans and Susie. There was Midnight and Daybreak. There was Buck and Bubbles. There was... Step and Fetch It, they broke up, and that guy became Step and Fetch It as one guy. And Count Basie and Duke Ellington, Happenstance was a comedy team. There was Stump and Stumpy. Stump and Stumpy started in the 30s. There was a number of different people over the course of time that would take on that moniker. You know, the, yeah. the personnel changed. But in the 1950s, Stump and Stumpy were being billed as the quote-unquote colored Martin and Lewis. They were being billed as the black equivalent of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, who were so popular at that time. That's comedy historian Cliff Nesteroff. Moms Mabley started in the 1920s as well. Started out pretty much from the beginning doing an elderly character, even when she was in her 20s. She was sort of like Walter Brennan in the movies, who in 1936 won an Academy Award for playing an old codger, and he also was like in his 20s or early 30s. And then Moms Mabley, Walter Brennan, these types of people, would play an elderly person for their entire career until they grew into the character and became elderly themselves. So uh, sort of interesting in that regard. But Moms Mabley was a creature of Harlem in the 1920s, and only played black clubs all throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. A man died, went up to the gate, Peter met him at the gate. Said, what do you want up here? He said, I had, I had seen us trouble. Say, you had what? Say, I had seen us trouble. Say, you mean sign us trouble? He said, I mean, seen us trouble. 
So I was coming out of the hotel with a woman and her husband seen us. Yeah, that's the voice of Mom's Mabley. And she would come out on stage in like a house dress and a knit cap and big shoes. And her stand-up persona was built around this straight-talking elderly woman who preferred the company of younger gentlemen. Now, you children know Mom. All you children know Mom. And you know Mom's reputation. You know Mom's been accused of liking young men. And I'm guilty. Ain't can't no old man do nothing for me. But bring me a message from a young man, that's all he do. And Jackie Mabley's career really gained a solid footing when this comedy team, Butter, Beans, and Susie, you remember from before, kind of discovered her in Texas, championed her, even took her on tour. This was a circuit that predated the Chitlin circuit called Theater Owners Booking Association. T-O-B-A. And what this was, was major theaters in cities primarily in the South and Midwest that catered only to African-American comedians, musicians, and dancers. Um, In the days of vaudeville in the teens and 20s, there was some crossover with black performers playing white vaudeville theaters, but there was also a circuit of black vaudeville theaters, usually in major urban areas with large black crowds. So Toba was kind of like a black vaudeville and was before the Apollo and the Chitlin circuit, but similar. Exactly, and it was known in show business as Toby time. And out of that grew what we now know of as the Chitlin circuit. So besides Butterbeans and Susie and Moms Mabley who were playing the Toby circuit, there were tons of these comedians. Eddie Anderson, Tim Moore, James Jordan, Willie Cracker, Mantan Moreland, Dusty Fletcher. Several of these became actors in film. The most famous was, of course, Step and Fetch It, who we mentioned earlier. But there was one guy who played both Toba and the Chitlin circuit, and is known for playing the Apollo Theater more than any other comedian. And that was a gentleman named Pigmeat Markham. Well, Pigmeat Markham usually performed with another guy, and it was a different guy depending on what era. Still generally defined as stand-up, even though it's a two-man thing as opposed to sketch, but it's a fine, fine line. So Pigmeat would play these characters. Certainly the one he is most famous for was a judge. And he was behind this giant bench. Hear ye, hear ye, the court of swing is just about ready to do that thing. I don't want no tears. I don't want no lies. Above all, I don't want no alibis. He was basically doing rap, an early rap, where he'd point his finger down at the defendant and yell at him in a rhyme scheme. And then in this very burlesque climax, he would hit the defendant over the head with a pig's bladder. And that's where the phrase pig meat came from. He would hold this piece of pig meat and and slap somebody in the face with it. It would make this big sound. And that was like his big closer, was assaulting somebody with a piece of of pork flesh. Judge, you judge, look, you got to remember me. Well, I got to know you, boy. I am the man who introduced you to your wife. You introduced me to my wife? Yeah. What? Life, you son of a gun! (laughs) 
what differentiated the Chitlin circuit from the Toba circuit was the Toba was big theaters. It's the Theater Owners Booking Association. And yes, the Chitlin circuit obviously had these big theaters as well. Almost every city with a substantial black population had one of these Apollo-esque theaters. There was the Howard in D.C., the Uptown in Philly, the Royal in Baltimore, the Regal in Chicago, the Fox in Detroit, the Hippodrome in Richmond, Virginia, the Ritz in Jacksonville, Florida. But there was also nightclubs, honky-tonks, storefronts, converted high school gyms. It could be anywhere they wanted to put on some entertainment and charge people to come into. It was independence, and out of the Chitlin circuit came a number of legendary stand-up comics. Now, I don't know if you know all of these comedians. Have you ever heard of Timmy Rogers? No. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody says they'll go right now, but how they lie. They go to church and they pray, but they still keep taking that vitamin A. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. No, 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 nobody wants to die. I'm too poor to die. Oh, yeah! Money, money, money. Everybody wants money. And you know, money is the root of all evil. And I'm trying to find those roots. Oh, yeah! People like Bing Crosby, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, Bob Hope, Ella Fitzgerald. You think they're happy? Oh, yeah! But they have their problems because... The more money they make, the more taxes they got to pay. They're in a very high tax bracket. I was home last night trying to figure out my taxes for this year. And after figuring it out, I got two words to say to you. I'm broke. <laughs> oh, yeah! <laughs> you see this suit? Three years old. You see the pockets? Brand new. <laughs> oh, yeah! And Timmy was one of the few pre-Dick Gregory acts that was allowed to play white nightclubs. Oh, yeah, Dick Gregory, we talked about him in the last episode, uh, you know, when he broke barriers playing the Chicago Playboy Club. Why was Timmy Rogers able to perform in these white clubs? Well, first of all, the majority of white clubs would not book Timmy Rogers. But my guess is, one, he would always dress up for the occasion usually wearing a tuxedo. He was very charming. He had this great catchphrase. And he was kind of a variety act. He would sing, accompany himself, and then tell these non-threatening jokes. What year was this? 40s and 50s. Another of these audience-friendly comedians of the time was named Nipsey Russell, and he spent three years honing his act at this small club in Harlem called the Club Baby Grand. The doctor said to me, he said, Nipsey, he said, the very best thing for your health is to give up women, give up drinking, and give up staying out at night. I said, Doc, I don't deserve the best. What's the next best? <laughs> well, that's the way it is. The people in the next apartment to me fight all the time. I hear her shouting at him. She says, why do you come in here half drunk? He said, because I ran out of money. <laughs> he got his start in nightclubs in Canada because he could not get booked in white clubs in America. He went to Montreal. He developed a bilingual act. He had two acts, one fluently in French and one fluently in English. 
in English clubs in Montreal and French clubs in Montreal. So that's what Nipsey Russell was doing in the late 40s. And of course, by the 1970s, television viewers knew Nipsey Russell as this perennial game show guest who would always bring a funny poem and actually started billing himself as the poet laureate of comedy. This all began on a game show called Missing Links, the first time he ever did the poem, and that became his signature. Nipsey, what do you say? A woman's age is like a speedometer on a secondhand car. We know they've all been turned back. We just don't know how far. That's right. There were two comedians who teamed up in 1948 and stayed together for a little bit until they became singles and gained traction on their own. One of them was Slappy White, and his ex-partner is Red Fox. I volunteered and went into the army. That's Slappy White. I volunteered. Two MPs came and got me and carried me on down. (laughs) And they carried me to a place called an induction center. And I was shocked that morning. Had on a charcoal tropical suit, a pink shirt, a black tie, some Edwin Clapp shoes, a John David Panama straw hat, broke down on the side, and shirt collar rolling from the shoulder. <laughs> and some guy walks up to me and said, take off all those clothes. Now, I didn't know him. <laughs> but I want to cooperate, because I thought maybe he might have been Uncle Sam. So I take off all my clothes and I'm standing up there in the nude. And he walks up to me and said, cough. Now how could I cough? I was afraid to sneeze. And for Red Fox, who obviously became a huge sitcom star, the breakthrough performance of Dick Gregory opened up many doors for him. Our next guest is dubbed the king of the party records. Basically, that means they're intended for laughs in the living room. He's made 34 albums, and they have sold in the millions. He's kind of a stranger to television and a stranger to me, frankly, but I'm very anxious to meet him. He's got an enormous cult of admirers. Here is Red Fox. This is Red Fox on his very first appearance on the Merv Griffin Show in 1966. What are party records? You play them at a party. You ever been to a party? You put the records on when it's kind of dull and then wait. Yeah? Are they... uh, Party starts. Naughty? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I'm honest. do uh, Do you do racial stuff, Red? Some. Yeah. Well... Actually, I don't like to talk about the races because I'm white, and uh, I am. This is a freckle. Uh, do you feel good? I really Where do. Where are you from originally? I was born in St. Louis. Were you? I left there early. Yeah. No, I wanted to head to New York to do good, and I came here when I was a youngster, 16. Did you, did you bring us a joke? About anything in particular? Anything. Well, I'll tell you a nice Southern story. It's about a preacher. He was preaching one time. Knows where the good preachers are down there, where you can really scream. And he was preaching. And one sister up in the balcony felt the spirit. And she jumped up and shouted, wow, and leaned too far out the balcony and fell. And the only thing that saved her life, she called a hold of a chandelier. And she was hanging above the church on his chandelier. And the deacon looked up and saw her. He said, anyone? That dare looketh 
will be struck blind. Oh, brother in the back row said, well, shucks. I'm gonna take a chance on this left eye. <laughs> So as you heard from Merv, at this time, Red was famous for these sort of X-rated party records. And there was a lot of comedians who released these albums that usually you had to buy behind the counter. Amongst them, Wild Man Steve, Skillet and Leroy, Rudy Ray Moore, a.k.a. Dolomite, Richard and Willie, and LaWanda Page. It was a colored pilot flying an airplane. So he gets on this plane, you know, and it's about 75 or 80 people on the plane. He gets on the plane and he jumps up in the cockpit and he gets onto the inner car and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, he says, This is the first colored pilot to ever fly the Pan American Airlines. He says, Hell, he said, We're going to fly all over. He said, We're going to fly 80,000 feet in the air. He says, We're going to fly to Japan. We're going to fly to London, England. We're going to fly to Australia. We're going to fly every damn where. He said, hell, we got plenty to eat on the damn plane. He says, hell, we got black-eyed peas and neck bones. He said, we got chitlins with the instant hog moth sauce. We got instant collard greens. We got every damn thing. Hell, we got plenty to drink. Hell, we got wine, beer, whiskey, gin. Hell, we gonna smoke some weed, baby. Hell, we gonna smoke a wild honey, and we gonna snort some coke. And say, hell, we gonna get high as the sky if I ever get this motherfucker up off of the ground. So like I said at the outset, the Apollo Theater and the Chitlin Circuit were primarily known as music venues where they would book the big bands and then jump blues and then R&B and then blues and funk and soul and doo-wop and rock and roll and gospel music or just vocalists and then eventually hip-hop. For all of these musical acts, their dream was to perform at New York's Apollo Theater. And historians will tell you the most culturally significant night at the Apollo, more so than anything Moms Mabley did or Pigmeat Markham, happened on October 24th, 1962, when this Chitlin Circuit performer recorded his album live at the Apollo. The star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. And that now historic recording released the following year solidified Apollo's legacy. Also in 1962, Motown launched the Motortown Review featuring some of their biggest acts. Every year this review would play a string of one-nighters eventually culminating in an extended residency at the Apollo Theater. One of the MCs of those tours was ventriloquist Willie Tyler. That's all you ordered? Who we spoke to at a Chinese restaurant. This was Motown because we were traveling around the country doing the Motortown Review. And when we got to New York, the Motortown Review, was, they were, they were one-nighters because they were in larger venues. Yeah. You know, big, gigantic places, you know, one-night things. 
But when we got to New York, we stayed there a week. So we were able to go to the hotel, stay in the hotel, and then go to the Apollo and do the shows. That's great, man. Hey, I, I love that, man. Wow. Now we're going to introduce the last act in the Motortown Review. And wait a minute, we got a problem, man. We got a problem. This is Willie Tyler and Lester. A problem? What do you mean? Well, see, we got, see, Snokey's here, but we, we can't find the miracles. What? We, we can't find the miracles. We, 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 look, we looked everywhere, man. We even went to 34th Street. No miracles. There's something about, it's about the history of that place. You, you go in there and there's something, there's a feeling. There's a feeling about something, it was special. It was a special place, you know. A lot of stuff went down there. Good stuff, you know. When you walked in the lobby, back in those days, they had uh, murals of the acts that, that appeared years ago. It, it was painted on the walls and stuff like that. And one thing I like, uh, what, that was interesting to me, on stage, they had a mic, mic stand that came out of the, the floor. It came up, you know. And uh, I remember the guy, I would always watch the guy who pulled the rope, you know, to see how he would pull it and just, it would go down into the basement, it would disappear if it, if, he, if, it was, if it wasn't needed. When you worked the Apollo, it was, it was everybody was uh, kind of afraid because the audience there, they've seen, they've seen everything. They've been there, they've come every week and they've seen everything. And if they didn't like you, they would let you know that they didn't like you. One of the most fascinating acts that came right at the end of the Chitlin Circuit was a comedian who started in San Francisco named Flip Wilson. Now, Flip bought a $99 Greyhound bus ticket that gives you unlimited travel across the United States, thus allowing him to play these clubs all across the country, eventually landing in Miami where he performed at this black hotel called the Sir John Hotel in Overtown, Miami. Flip was a very unique comedian because he approached comedy methodically, almost like a scientific method. He had this book that was published in the 30s called Enjoyment of Laughter, written by Max Eastman. And that had all kinds of theories about what makes people laugh. And he read that book constantly. He gave himself 15 years to become famous. And for seven of those years, he worked on this bit called Christopher Columbus. And this is the bit that he first did on The Ed Sullivan Show and on The Tonight Show. Everyone has idols, right? My idol, of all the giants of American history, my idol is Christopher Columbus. I mean, when he was a kid, he had a big problem. And the neighbors would come by, they'd lean over the fence, they'd tease him, they'd say things like, Christopher Columbus, what are you gonna do when you grow up? And he'd say, I'm gonna discover America. <laughs> I told him, you better cut that out. You know there isn't any America. You know the world is square. Chris would say they sure are. Pretty five, when he'd gotten out of grammar school, he arranged an audience with the Queen. Queen Isabel. Isabel Johnson. What's the Queen's name? Don't she ask him about this America project? And Chris tells him, if I don't discover America, there won't be a Benjamin Franklin or a star-spangled banner, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and no Ray Charles. When the queen heard no Ray Charles, she panicked. The queen said, Ray Charles! You gonna find Ray Charles? Is he in America? Chris said, sure, that's where all those records come from. Before the queen's running through the halls of the castle screaming, Chris! 
it's going to find Ray Charles, <laughs> So Flip takes the bus to the Apollo Theater, goes to amateur night, and impresses the owner-booker, Frank Schiffman, who actually hires him to open for B.B. King for 300 a week. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but at that time at the Apollo, you would do four shows a day, Monday through Friday. So that's four times five, that's 20. Then you would do five shows on Saturday. Then you would do another six on Sunday. So you were doing 31 shows a week. So at $300, Flip Wilson made $9.68 per show. Now, Schiffman, who ran the theater for decades, was known for having these note cards where he would judge every act that plays. They're at the Smithsonian right now, Andrew. You can look it up. What did he think of Aretha Franklin? What did he think of James Brown? What did he think of uh, Jimi Hendrix? I'm reading Flip Wilson's card. January 19, 1962. $300 with B.B. King. Good MC, good comedy bit. Then eventually he got better. He worked with Nina Simone. Better with jazz show, but okay. Poised, cool delivery. Cooperative. So these, if you ever want to know about the acts that performed at that time and what Schiffman thought and the salaries he paid, go online to the Smithsonian because these are part of American history now. Eventually, uh, Flip Wilson got his own variety show and in 1972 was on the cover of Time Magazine and it said, TV's first black superstar. And just as a side note, a couple of the writers he hired for the Flip Wilson show, George Carlin and Richard Pryor. That Flip Wilson Time Magazine cover story reminds me of certainly the nation's first black comedy superstar, a now largely forgotten comedian by the name of Burt Williams. Remember earlier we were talking about the Toba Circuit, which was... Black Vaudeville. Exactly. And there was also White Vaudeville, which was known as Vaudeville. Now, there were a few black performers that were allowed to play this white circuit. For example, the team of Buck and Bubbles, the dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson, and Burt Williams. When summer comes all cool and clear, and my friends see me drawing near, Come in, have some beer. Hmm, no butter. So, he's a singer? Well, that's just part of the story. He was a very big recording artist. He recorded for Victor Talking Machine Company and then got a big deal recording on Columbia, which is the recording we're listening to right now. But he became famous as part of a comedy team with his partner Walker. And then when his partner died, he became even more acclaimed and not only headlined the palace, which was the height of vaudeville, but also was hired to be in the Ziegfeld Follies for many years and became the highest paid performer in the Ziegfeld Follies. Highest paid black performer? No, highest paid performer. He had this comic character that was reflected in that song, Nobody, called the Jonah Man. And the Jonah Man was, was the dude that nothing ever went right for. If he wasn't for bad luck, he had no luck at all. He used to say, if it was raining soup, he would have a fork. It was that guy. Unfortunately for Burt Williams, he lived in a time of 
intense racial segregation, even in New York, where he mainly performed. W.C. Fields said that he was the funniest person he had ever seen and also the saddest. Burt Williams, for the majority of his career, performed in the minstrel tradition of wearing blackface on stage. Why on earth would a black performer put on blackface and demean him or herself? They were expected to. Why? Um, because it made the audiences comfortable. This is a clip of Maurice Dubois and Margot Jefferson from CBS Sunday Morning. Comfortable having someone on a stage above them, looking down on them, uh, being held up on they, a pedestal? How, what, they were what not comfortable we... with watching. They would never have been comfortable, and were not, um, with watching black actors. Burt Williams was a phenomenon and was known as America's greatest comedian for years. It's interesting that even someone like him would have to wear blackface. Well, he wasn't the only one. I know Sammy Davis Jr., when he started out, they put him in blackface. And Pig Meat Markham, who played the Apollo more than anyone else, he used blackface into the 40s. He thought it made it easier for him to perform comedy. Just to reiterate, Burt Williams was a sensation. Audiences loved him, both in the United States and overseas. He did a command performance for King Edward. But unfortunately, a lot of Burt Williams' legendary performances are lost forever. But besides the song Nobody, there is a bit he did when he headlined the palace, a pantomime of playing poker. All you have to do is search online for Burt Williams' famous poker scene, and you'll get a sense of his incredible talent. The Chitlin Circuit starts to erode, you know, during the civil rights period during desegregation. And during this period, there's a surprising rediscovery of two Toby Time legends. Suddenly, Moms Mabley is on primetime television. She's on the Ed Sullivan Show. She's on the Smothers Brothers Show. She's presenting awards on the Grammys. She's selling lots of albums. She records a protest song. Here she is with Sammy Davis on Playboy After Dark. Well, Moms, we're sure tickled that you were able to join us tonight. Well, I'm tickled to death to be here, honey. It's been such a long time since I've been with my boy, you know. And every time, you know, the name Moms and I don't know how many people know that, it comes from the fact that this, this marvelous lady has always been a mother to every young performer that came along for the, for the last few years. I know when I first worked around the Apollo and the Regal Theater in the Royal and Baltimore, this was Mom's, and she'd come back and comment about the performance and help you and do anything and open up a heart to you. That's and what thank you if, if necessary. <laughs> Mom's, I, I know everybody here at the party knows about it, but Mom's, you know, she does... The comedy albums have sold the millions and everything, but she, my favorite album of all the things, is when she does serious subject matters, and she sings serious, sing talk in her own style, serious subject matters. Would you do for me Abraham, Martin, and John? Yes. Oh. <laughs> all right, <laughs> And the same with Pigmeat Markham. He's on Laugh-In. You see him on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And he has a hit single based on his old judge character. Yeah, he, yeah, he's the cold of swing. It's just about ready to do that thing. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Everybody know that he is the judge. 
But this is the era for the next wave of African-American comedians like Irwin C. Watson and Richard Pryor and Scoey Mitchell, Bill Cosby, Stu Gilliam, and the great Godfrey Cambridge. When he goes to the store to buy a watermelon, he is so ashamed he tells the man, wrap it up. On. <laughs> you meet him on the street and say, hey, baby, what you got there? He says, oh, I got my bowling ball. <laughs> Have you ever seen an oblong bowling ball? <laughs> I don't blame people for not wanting us to live in their neighborhoods. Because we have a very high crime rate. All the big criminals is coming. <laughs> Al Capone is here. By the late 60s, there's still Chitlin Circuit venues that exist, yeah. but they don't exist because you're shut out necessarily of white show business. They just exist because they're established. People like going to this club, it's popular, and that's it. Unfortunately, most of the comedians that performed on the Chitlin Circuit are no longer with us. But luckily, we got to speak to a comedian who remembers playing Chitlin Circuit clubs. Tim and I became a comedy team in 1969. This is Tom Dreesen and his comedy partner, Tim Reed. We just lost two great leaders, Dr. King, uh, Robert Kennedy. Uh. In the midst of all this, you know, Tim and I were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Where we worked primarily in those days was the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. In Chicago, the High Chaparral, the Burning Spear, the Guys and Gals Lounge, the Dating Club Lounge. And they, they honestly were always intrigued, a black-white comedy team. And once we got some renown and some skills, we worked across the land. We worked the Sugar Shack in Boston, the uh, 20 Grand in Detroit. At, at that time, the uh, Motown was in Detroit. And so all the Motown acts broke in at a club called the 20 Grand. You know, Smokey and Robinson and the Miracles, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, uh, whenever Motown was ready to send them to Vegas, they'd break their act in at the 20 Grand, owned by a gangster named Bill Cabush. BK, everybody called him. And Tim and I worked at the 20 Grand in Detroit and the Club Harlem in Atlantic City long before there was gambling there. Yeah. The Club Harlem was on Kentucky Avenue. Now, all the nightclubs across the land, white or black, wherever you work, you opened on a Monday and you closed on a Saturday night. Now, once in a while, they might have a Sunday matinee, but most, most of the clubs, that was a night where people packed up and up and left and then Monday was opening night. Not the Club Harlem. Opening night, Saturday night, 10 o'clock at night was the first show. 2 o'clock in the morning was the second show. 6 a.m. was the third show, the breakfast show. They, that was 6 a.m. Sunday morning, and it was packed, jammed, and you closed on the following Friday. The show would have almost always on a Chitlin circuit, it was never two acts. It was almost always four and five acts. At, at the Club Harlem, Mama Lou Parks and her dancers. Mama Lou was a big, heavyset black woman, and she had all these young kids that danced. They did the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, those dances, right? And they would skip the show rocking, just jamming. Then it would be a, a singing group, three guys, the Sons of Robin Stone, and then three girls, the Quiet Elegance, and then they would sing. That's the next act. The fourth act was comedy, be Tim and Tom, and the fifth act would be the headliner, Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, The OJs. So like Cliff Nesteroff explained, there's still predominantly black comedy venues, 
the great Robin Harris. He became the MC at the Comedy Act Theater. That was a black club. Jimmy Walker played the African Room in New York City. There's the Union right over here in L.A. There's a legendary, now closed, black comedy club in Chicago called All Jokes Aside. As for the Apollo, during the 1970s, when New York City almost went bankrupt, the Apollo Theater fell in disrepair, was closed for a while. It was then sold, designated a national landmark, refurbished, and reopened to great acclaim. Tonight, from the village of Harlem in New York City, the world-famous Apollo Theater, where dreams are born and legends are made, is proud to present it's Showtime at the Apollo! Well, everybody, welcome to Showtime at the Apollo. I'm your man, Steve Harvey. All right, now let me explain something to you. There is a tradition that goes on here that don't go on no other theater in the world, but it happens here at the Apollo. There are going to be some acts that's going to walk out of here. Some acts are going to do well. Some acts ain't going to do well. A lot of bad acts gonna be walking off. But this guy gonna help him get out of here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our very own Sandman. Steve Harvey kicked off a, a line of great comedians who hosted this show, including Whoopi Goldberg and Rick Avilas and Martin Lawrence and Sid Bad and Monique and Mark Curry. And the tradition of getting booed or run off stage was continued with incredible comedians like Mike Epps. It happened to Sarah Silverman. It happened to Jamie Foxx. And it even happened to Dave Chappelle. Yeah, look, I said, I'm going to go to that Apollo and rip that mug. <laughs> I went for the regular Wednesday amateur night. When I say I got booed off stage. God. This is Dave Chappelle talking with James Lipton on Inside the Actors Studio. I still remember that boo. I'd never been booed off stage before, but I just remember looking out and seeing like everybody booing, everybody. <laughs> Even old people, I was like, who, who boos a child pursuing his dreams? <laughs> this is the, the meanest crowd in the world. <laughs> and that sign went off, and a dude comes out tap dancing, dun, 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 dun. San, Sandman. Sandman, I wanted to choke this out, I hate you. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow. Best thing, because before that time, I had never bombed, let alone got booed off stage. And bombing was horrifying. Nobody wants to bomb. Nobody, just, you know, when people say you do comedy, what happens if nobody laughs? I don't know. <laughs> so that night was liberating because I failed so far beyond my wildest nightmares of failing that it was like, hey, they're all booing. My friends are here watching, my mom. This is not that bad. <laughs> and after that, I was fearless. When summertime comes, all warm and clear, and my friends see me drawing near who says come on in and have a beer nobody 
In the year 2000, Johnny Cash recorded his version of Burt Williams' 1905 hit song, Nobody. Well, one time when things was looking bright, I started to whittle it on a stick one night. Who said, hey, that's dynamite? Nobody. The History of Stand-Up is written and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks to Tom Dreesen and Tim Reed, Cliff Nesteroff, whose book, The Comedians, is available everywhere, Willie Tyler and Lester, and the Abraham Comedy Archives. Some of the music in this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We also want to say thanks to two books that were invaluable for today's episode. One was On the Real Side by Mel Watkins and The Red Fox Encyclopedia of Black Humor, written by Red Fox and Norma Miller. Please follow us on Twitter at Hist of Standup and online at thehistoryofstandup.com. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.